Turn your Bibles to the book of Acts as we continue in our series that we've entitled Unstoppable. Uh, last year, during the school year, we did the first 13 chapters of the book of Acts under the heading Unfinished, and we picked that series back up here just a couple weeks ago as we look at chapters 13 through 28, as we look at the life and ministry and mission trips of the Apostle Paul, uh, we find ourselves looking under the heading of Unstoppable. And this morning, we are going to be looking at a large portion of Scripture, in fact, uh, 28 verses of Scripture out of Acts 14, and what we have seen is a bit of redundancy. Paul and Barnabas head into a city, they preach the gospel to people, some believe, some don't, some get upset, some get on fire for the Lord, um, and uh, uh, sometimes they have to leave the city, sometimes they stay for a period of time, and yet, even though we see this level of redundancy, uh, Luke has written this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit for a purpose, and we want to draw out some of the conclusions that come from what seems to be, in times, a broken record. And so I'm going to look at Luke, I'm sorry, Luke, Acts 14, verses 1 through 28, and then I'm going to ask God's blessing our time. We're going to jump right in uh, to our message. Then, So let's read uh, Acts chapter 14, verses 1 through 28. If you don't have a Bible, grab that pew Bible in the pew rack in front of you. You can find it on page 923. Here's what Luke, uh, I keep saying Luke, Acts 14 uh, says. Luke wrote Acts 14. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided, some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Now at Lystra there was a man who was sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking. And Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And the man sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with uh, with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. And having persuaded the crowds... They stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Atalia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work they had fulfilled. 
And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we have before us an incredible passage of Scripture. So much is going on. Mighty witness being led by Paul and Barnabas to every and all people who will listen. And we are reminded today, Lord, that we are called to share that message. We are called to be bold and courageous in our faith. And so thank you for the example of these wonderful men. Though they are, in their own words, men just like us, they were men who did wonderful and awesome things with your gospel of grace. And Lord, I pray through their example and through the filling of the Holy Spirit, we might leave this place with that bold and courageous witness. Put away any excuses, put away any distractions, Lord, that would keep us from that mission we ask, and it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen and amen. You know, when I was growing up, especially in my high school days, and I don't remember when it happened, but I was given a nickname. And nicknames are used to uh, tell a little bit more maybe about the person of who is being nicknamed. Uh, but I was given the name, and many of you, all of you probably know, my last name is Badal, B-A-D-A-L. And at some point, and again, I don't remember when it happened, but I started getting called Bad Al. And my friends liked it. And instead of Tim, Bad Al was it. My mom didn't like it. She said, I'm not a fan of the name Al, and I don't like that you're called bad, and all of that. And, and, and she didn't like it. My teacher said, if the shoe fits, wear it. And I was one bad character, and they said, that works. And they would call me Bad Al in the classroom. And, and nicknames are, are great, right? Hopefully they're not derogatory. Uh, but many times they speak of uh, an individual more than maybe at times we want them to. But my favorite nickname of all of human history is the nickname Stonewall. Uh, Thomas Jackson was a general in the Confederate Army, and he fought for the Confederacy even though as a God-fearing man he abhorred the evil of slavery. Uh, it had to be difficult for him in fighting against the country he loved. And I'm not sure of all his politics, but reading from his own words, he was a southerner who did not sympathize with slaveholding and the slave trade. And he worked his way up from the Virginia Military Institute into the Confederate's General Corps. And he was a brigadier general at the Battle of uh, Manassas, the first battle of Bull Run in northern Virginia. It was one of the first major battles of the, of the war in 1861. And he was known before that battle as Thomas Jackson. But forever after that, he would be named Stonewall. Even on his tomb, it says Thomas Stonewall Jackson. Where did he get the nickname? Well, in that battle of Bull Run at Manassas, the Confederacy was losing badly. Retreats were happening all over the place. And a neighboring general who had called for his people to stand fast and watched them run in fear as the battle raged on, pointed over to a high place on the battlefield where Stonewall Jackson was standing. But his name wasn't Stonewall at that time. So where did he get the name? You see, the general hearkened to his troops, I want you to stand like Jackson is, like a stone wall, impregnable, immovable, amidst all hardships and struggles. Stand fast, don't run, don't give up your place, even when the going gets tough. Acts 14 is a picture where I think the nicknames for Barnabas and Paul should be Stonewall Barnabas and Stonewall Paul. And it's a reminder for each and every one of us that we are called to stand fast and to press on. President Calvin Coolidge shared these words about persistence and forbearing under difficult circumstances and times. He says, press on. Nothing in this world can take place of persistence. Talent will not. 
Nothing is more common than unsuccessful men or women with talents. Genius will not. Unrewarded genius is almost a proverb. Education will not. The world is full of educated derelicts. Persistence and determination alone, he says, are omnipotent. They're all powerful. In Acts 14, we learn that persistence and determination is one of the great things that we as a society and as we as a church in the society have given up. God has called us over and over again to a life of perseverance, to a life of grittiness, to a life of sticking with it even when the going gets tough. Jesus told his disciples that in this world you're going to have trouble. No matter what the TV preachers tell you, in this world we will have trouble. But Jesus said the reason why you can persist, the reason why you can persevere is because he says, take heart, I have overcome the world. The battle's already won. And so we can be confident and we can remain steadfast amidst all kinds of troubles and of course of all types of tribulation because we serve a God who has overcome it all. And so we can stand fast knowing that in the middle of the war, in the midst of the battle, we are safe and sound. This is what we see in Acts 14. But I want you to know this persistence isn't in dealing with a medical issue. This persistence isn't dealing with a relational issue. This issue of persistence isn't even just walking the life of holiness as a Christian. There's a very particular uh, theme that's running through Acts 14. And that persistence is something that we need to hear. And it is our need to be persistent in preaching and proclaiming boldly the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I think Luke understood that as we read this later on, that we are going to struggle with that. Now, I want you to know, two times in the passage, we will see that Paul and Barnabas flee. And you say, wait a minute, and, and this was brought up in the first service, and I'll just bring it up in the second service, that we could quickly say, well, see, yeah, they, they fled, and there's reasons for us to flee. And I want you to know, church, that there are times where you should run and not proclaim the gospel. And I want you to notice where they're at. When people say they're going to kill you, and when they take up rocks and they stone you, it may be a good time to get out. So you've got the hall pass, if you will, to flee, to not fulfill that part of the mission if that happens. But I'm going to be honest with you, if we were to rewind back to our week this last week, very few of us were on mission for Christ, probably, if we were honest about it to ourselves. And none of us were threatened upon with warnings of death, impending death. And none of us had rocks thrown at us to the point of being nearly dead. And so when that happens, your pastor gives you carte blanche, run like the wind, okay? And head out. But that's not what we see. What we see is all these words, and I've underlined in my Bible all these words, they remained, they continued, they went on, they returned, they continued, they had fulfilled the job. And then at the end of the, of the chapter, verse 28, and they remained no little time with the disciples. They never quit. They never gave up. And we see over and over again that there's a reason for their persistence in the good times and in the bad. When the gospel was received and when the gospel was thrown back in their faces, they continued on to preach the message. And the question we have to ask, and I put myself as a disclaimer in, in with you, the congregation, what excuse... What distraction do we have that keeps us from proclaiming the gospel that was so near and dear to Paul and Barnabas? Why is it not near and dear to us? What keeps us from proclaiming this message in a place where we carry so much freedom and have so much opportunity? Well, before I look at three characteristics of what I want to call Stonewall Christianity, let's figure out where we've been so far. And so, if you remember, in Acts 13, where this thing all gets started, we're in the church of Antioch in Syria. And in Acts 13, in verses 1 through 3, we are told of a church service where they're gathered together and the leaders are leading and they're worshiping and fasting and praying to the Lord. And during their time of worship in that city of Antioch in Syria... 
It is made clear that Paul and Barnabas, by God himself, has been called to go and to preach the good news. They don't know where they're going, they don't know how they're going to do it, but they've been called. And so they head out, and they go to Seleucia. Seleucia is a port city in Syria. They head down to the island of Cyprus, across the Mediterranean Sea. They land in Salamis, we see in Acts 13. And then they head, as they preach throughout the entire island of uh, Cyprus, they reach the city of Paphos. In Paphos, we are told that uh, the leading leader, the governor of the land, Sergius Paulus, hears about what Paul and Barnabas are teaching, and they want to, he, he wants to hear more. And so they come and they preach to Sergius Paulus and that's when they have their run-in with Bar-Jesus, Elymas, this false Jewish prophet. And this is where Paul strikes him blind for trying to blind the eyes of Sergius Paulus. And then they make the decision, we're going to head out. They've preached through the entire area of Cyprus. They're going to head out. And, and as they're about to head out, John Mark, who is with them, says, you know, this whole persistence thing, this whole persevering thing, I'm out. And we don't know why. We've got our reasons and we talked about them. But he says, I'm not going to go on for the rest of the journey. Well, they land in Pamphylia, uh, where Perga, Italia is at, but they head to Perga, and then they head up to a new Antioch, which is called Antioch Pisidia, and uh, they preach there. We're going to see that they did that last week, where we saw them in Antioch, and then we see in verse, or chapter 14, verse 1, they head to Iconium, and so that's where they're at in the countryside of Laconia, and uh, they're going to then go from Iconium uh, to Derbe, to Lystra, and then what they're going to do is, at the rest of chapter 14, they're just going to make their way all the way back. That's what we're seeing and what we've read in the text. So that shows you, you can visit these places. Uh, Dave Haas uh, recently, just a couple years ago, was in places like Paphos and Salamis and Italia and uh, Lystra and Derby. Those are ruins now. They're not um, whole cities anymore like they once were. But these are real life places with places of remembrance and, and places you can go and visit. And so that's where we've been. And so how did they do all this amidst all kinds of trials and struggles? They were stonewall Christians. When the going got tough, they remained steadfast and continued preaching the gospel. Well, let's look at three characteristics of how they do it because God's calling us to that kind of uh, stonewall, if you will. The first thing I want you to notice is they were committed to the cause. They were committed to the cause. Now, we are told in Acts 13 in Antioch that Paul and Barnabas had been uh, set apart by the Holy Spirit to do a work. Well, what was the work? Was the work to go do relief work? No. Was the work to go build houses? No. Was it to go and uh, serve soup to the uh, shelter, uh, homeless shelter individuals? No. It was to preach the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, all the other things that I've just talked about are all great and they're wonderful and at times churches should be a part of those things. But the number one goal, the number one purpose that we have as followers of Jesus Christ is to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness, Peter says, and brought us into his wonderful light. And here's why. Anybody can build a house. Anybody can serve soup. Anybody can uh, do all manner of relief, and those are important and real, and, and we, need to, we need to be involved in them. But we must recognize, and we must never put away, the main focus of us as Christians is to be holy so that we can go and share the good news of Jesus Christ with all who will listen. Why? Because you cannot share the good news of Jesus Christ as an unbeliever. And so it's on us. The one thing that we are only allowed to do, or only gifted to do, is to share the good news with Jesus Christ. And far too many of us, I'm sorry to say, haven't done this in years. And we've got all the different reasons as to why. But let's understand, number one, what is the cause? The cause is spelled out no less than three times in verses 1 through 7 of chapter 14. The cause is to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. Notice in verse 1, they spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. Their conversation moved people to believe in Jesus Christ. Number 2, notice in uh, verse 3, so they remained for a long time doing what? The mission, speaking boldly for the Lord. 
Well, they spoke. Look what the Lord does. As they speak as broken and fragile vessels, the Lord bears witness to the word of His grace, and He grants them signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Number seven, or verse seven, number three. And there, after going throughout all these cities, they continued to do what? The mission. What's the mission? To preach the gospel. This is what Acts 14 is preaching. A very needed lesson for us today. We must persist in the preaching of God's word, in the proclamation of the gospel, because if we don't, people will not be saved. People will not be saved. They knew what their mission was. So ask yourself this morning, when was the last time you actually spoke with someone and shared the gospel with them? You shared that just as they need to receive Christ, you have received Christ and experienced forgiveness of your sins and the cleansing of unrighteousness. When was the last time you did that? Far too many of us here in America, rarely, if ever, statistics tell us, shared the gospel. And so we are failing at the very mission that God has called us to. Why? I think for a lot of reasons it's because we've bought into lies. Let me share a couple lies that maybe some of us are falling into right now. And I want to remind you that these are lies, and the only one who's preaching lies is the devil. And we're falling prey to those deceitful statements. Number one, lie number one. The reason why I'm not sharing the gospel is because the gospel is to be shared by pastors and missionaries only. Wow, that makes no sense at all. We're going to watch football today. At least some will watch football today. And I want you to envision that the huddle comes together and the quarterback says, all right, team, this is what we're going to do. Here's our mission. We want to get to the, uh, the end zone, and this is how we're going to do it. And the team says, all right, yep, we got you. And they get into their stances, and the quarterback's all excited. He's got his team with him. And he says, all right, and he yells Omaha like 14 times like uh, Peyton Manning does, and he hikes the ball, right? And he watches all of the guys stand up and put their arms like this. What happens to said quarterback? He's going out in a body bag, right? That is what happens when you buy into the lie that pastors and missionaries are the only ones to preach the gospel, and you wonder why missionaries and pastors are leaving the ministry in droves. Because we all should be moving towards the goal. We should all be on mission for Christ. And a lot of us, when the ball gets hiked, when it's time to preach the gospel, we put our hands together, and the ones that are doing it take the full weight of the world against them. And it's a travesty. And it's from the pit of hell. We are all, listen, very carefully, nowhere, nowhere, nowhere in the Bible does it ever make a distinction on who's to preach the gospel. Ever. Ever. This discussion came up in small groups this week, and, and I got reports back from small group leaders who said, why are we talking about this? This is what they're saying in their groups. Why are we talking about this? This isn't for us. Baloney. Because if it's not for us, then we're a country club, folks. And we might as well close this place up if we are not on fire for the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the only hope in the world. And if you're not going to share that hope, then get out of the way. But don't call yourself a Christ follower. Because that's what Christ followers do. We share the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world. And if we're not, we're playing some game. And I'll tell you, the one who's not interested in it is God. Because the Bible makes it clear, God has come and he has sent Jesus to seek and to save that which is lost. If he didn't have us here for that reason, we would have been raptured a long time ago. We're here for a purpose. We're here to boldly proclaim the gospel. It's not for the pastors and missionaries alone. Should we lead it? Yeah. Should we be passionate about it? Yeah. 
But we're working towards the same goal. Lie number two. We have to wait for the perfect time. And so you're, you're one step, you're one step farther in the process. You don't believe the lie that it's not for you. You buy into it. It's, it's yours. You take the responsibility of it. And I love that. That's great. That's a needed first step. And yet you're waiting for this time, this magical time where the sky opens up and the beam of light falls upon you and a voice from heaven says, and now witness to Tom. Well, who's Tom? The man standing right next to you. This guy? That guy. Okay, God, got it. Perfect time. I'm ready. When I was younger on the playground, I would watch the girls jump rope. And, and they would jump with one rope, and then to really freak out the boys, they would add two jump ropes. They called it double dutch. I don't know if Dutch people everywhere jump with two jump ropes. I'm not sure. But being an overweight, chubby kid, you didn't get anywhere near a jump rope. Too much bouncing, okay? You just stayed away from it. But I watched from afar. Some of you got that joke. But I watched from afar. And there was a girl in my class, and we were in elementary school, that she would always say, I'm next, I'm next. And the jump rope would happen and the girls are doing, and they would sing songs and all this stuff. It freaked out the boys, something fierce. We didn't understand what they were doing. And, and the girl would sit there, and I don't know why they did this, but, and you'll remember as soon as I do it, they go like this, the hands go up and like, okay. And she would do this. And she never jumped in. And she just kept going and they'd be like, come on, she's not ready. Oh, I missed it. And I'm going to tell you, Christians, that we have that when it comes to witnessing, if we're really honest. That we feel it, and maybe the Lord hasn't shed down a light on us and said, this is Tom, you need to witness to him. But we see it, we see that opportunity, and what we do is, ah, 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 and then we give up. And the bell rings and we go back into class. And we talk about, well, when the next opportunity comes, I'll do it. When you find yourself in that situation, listen, you've bought into a lie. And you're not on mission for Christ and his kingdom. Number three, this isn't the right place to do it. This isn't the right place to do it. And so what we do is we say there is a right place to preach the gospel. Okay. That sounds really, really good, right? That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, let's, let's think about this. There are good times to share the gospel and there are bad times to share the gospel. Let me do this for you. The building's on fire. You know the building's on fire. The rest of the building that you're in, the people in it, don't know the building's on fire. And people are dying because of the fire. And they said, well, you knew about the fire. Yeah, but I just didn't think it was the right time to tell people the building was on fire. Hmm. That, that sounds moronic, doesn't it? And that's what we do. Well, I, I surely shouldn't share the gospel at work. That's just not the right place to do it because I might lose my job. Let's be honest. I get a feed, a religious freedom news feed on my, um, on my uh, email. And I follow all these things. It's from a legal uh, firm, and they talk about it. And I can tell you that there's a handful of cases where you could lose your job for sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. It's real. It's there. Yep. But in a world of, or in a country of 300 million people, my email hasn't been shut down with all of those cases, right? So, is there a chance that I could lose my job? Yeah, there's a real chance. You could lose your job, especially depending on what kind of job you have and all of that. But there's also a chance I can walk out and get into my car and a tree from Bliss Woods could fall out on top of me. So does that mean I don't go into the parking lot? Let's get real, folks. There are things we need to be worried about. The Bible says that the kingdom kingdom of God is found through tribulation. And so we're going to go through tribulation. Paul reminded of the people that. But let's be honest. There's a lot of opportunities to be had. There's a right place, and what that right place is sharing the good news of Jesus Christ is? Every place. Every time. We just saw a picture. We just saw a picture where our students, where our students go to a place on the property of the school to read the scriptures, to pray, and to study God's word. 
Now, why in the world the church didn't stop and give a standing ovation, I'm not sure. Because that is what we should be doing as followers of Jesus Christ. We should be as bold as our kids. And we say, that's great, kids. That's wonderful. Listen, they run the same risks that you and I do in our office places. The abandonment from friends, the isolation of being alone. And I will tell you, we're not worthy to carry those students' sandals or shoes for what they're doing. And we say, that's great, kids, keep it up. And it's a, it's, a, it's a cancer on our house, a pox on our house, that we would do that as the mature followers of Jesus Christ that we say we are. They were courageous, and these students are courageous. What is the goal? What is the mission? To preach Christ. <sighs> Lie number four. Because I find it difficult, it must not be in God's plan. So you're saying, you know what, I'll do it. I'm willing to do it, but the second I get opposition, I'm done, God. It's just not working. Let's deal with this logic really quick. I have my students in my home every week. Every week, one of them comes and says, school's hard, Dad. I don't want to do it. Right? You know what I say to them? It must not be God's will. It must not be God's will. I mean, I don't know why these teachers are making it so hard on you, and it's just proving, stay home, son. It's not God's will. And then I come home and I, I say to Amanda, gosh, work was really a pain today. Man, I'm in need of a vacation. And Amanda says, you know what, just quit your job. It's not God's will. It's not God's will that you do that because it's hard. And God doesn't want you to have a hard life. Baloney. God says in this world you're going to have trouble. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be hard. And it's God's will that we suffer well and endure hardship like a good soldier, Paul says. So those are the lies. Are you buying into one of them? I digress. I need to get going here. Who does it include? Who does it include? Who does this mission include? Who are we to be preaching this gospel to? Notice in Acts 14, all of the different names of groups of people that it involves. Jews, Greeks, Gentiles. Common folk, people amidst the crowd, nameless individuals, the church hierarchy, the religious establishment. We have people who fear God. We have people who worship other gods as Zeus and Hermes. There were people who were open to the message of the gospel, and there were those who were dead against it. And who did Paul and Barnabas preach to? The same people we need to preach to, all of them. Listen, the gospel is for all. So don't reduce your idea of who needs the gospel and who doesn't need the gospel based on your social, economic, nationality, background, or prejudices. It's for all. And Paul and Barnabas go into cities and they say, we're just going to take care of the Jews. No, they say, we're going to deal with all of them. We're going to preach and proclaim because this gospel has been given to all. What does it involve? Paul and Barnabas wake up every morning and they viewed every interaction as an opportunity to share Christ. Now, I want to make this clear. Was it a full sermon? No. No. This, my dad is phenomenal at this. My dad moves every conversation. Well, I don't care what it is. He gets it to Jesus somehow. We're, we're, we're doing some work on a building that we own, and we had an architect there. We're talking just architect stuff. We're going to put this here. We're going to put that there. And we're talking about all this stuff. This guy, he, the way he talks, there's no way I would think he's a follower of Jesus Christ. My dad's there. And, and I'm talking, okay, yeah, we'll put this beam there. We'll put that beam there. And my dad stops and he says, enough talk about the building. Can we not just stop and re- realize and recognize that without the firm foundation of Jesus Christ, we'd all be lost? <laughs> I'm like, are you kidding me? I want to drag my father out of the building. I'm like, come on. And the guy's like, what'd you say? And he says, you know, you're all about making sure the foundation's right. Is your foundation right? I'm like, oh, not bad. That'll preach. 
And so what I'm not saying is, is you see, what we, what, we, what we do is, and this is maybe what some of our, our friends in our small groups were thinking, when they hear the word preach, they think what I'm doing. Now I'm teaching the word of God, and I've been gifted by that, and not everybody's gifted to teach in this way. And I've received it from God, and I'm thankful for it, and I would not presuppose uh, upon you that next week we'll say, okay, someone else, and we have this revolving door of, of preachers. That, that's not what I'm saying. But what was being talked about is they spoke in such a way that it pointed people to Jesus. And I'm just here to ask you this morning, are you having conversations that are pointing people to Jesus? Are you pointing them to Jesus? Does it mean that you get to the Romans road every single time? No, it should get there at some point. But are you pointing people to Jesus? Are you telling people of the experience you've had by trusting Jesus as your Savior? The trials and tribulations and the difficulties that God has allowed you to get through as a result of His grace and His mercy. Are you showing people that? It has been said that witnessing is one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. People are hungry for the gospel. And we say, listen, where I found the food was over here. You should go there as well. You're in need of food. We have to do it. Well, where do we get the ability to do it, the fortitude to do it? Point number two, we've got to have confidence in Christ. Listen, you will never proclaim something that you have zero confidence in. The Badals are in search of a new car. And uh, I sent Amanda and her father-in-law and my son to go look at a car yesterday. And the nice thing is, we're not sure what we're going to get. And, and I said, Amanda, you go and you look at this car and, and see if it's what you want. And the good thing is, is you can say, well, my husband's not here. He, he has to help make the decision. And so he'll have to come and look at it. So they go and look at the car and the car doesn't start. And Amanda said, it was really easy after that. Because the dealer didn't push. Why? He can't get the car started. There's a good chance you're not selling a car that doesn't start. Okay? And I don't know why it didn't start. But it didn't. And so I said, well, what'd the guy do? He really didn't have a sales pitch. Why? Because he had zero confidence in the product that he was trying to get us to buy into. And I think... One of the reasons why we fail at evangelism is we ourselves are not convinced that Jesus is all that he says he is. Because if he was, we'd tell the world about it. Because that's the secret. That's the goal. That's the desire. Man, I have been changed by the blood of Jesus Christ. I am not the same person I used to be. And because of that, I'm going to share it with the world. When was the last time you went to a great restaurant or watched a great movie? You told the world about it. But Jesus died for your sins, took away eternal damnation and hell from you, and places you in the heavenly realms with Christ Jesus, with every spiritual blessing under heaven. And we can't get our mouths open to proclaim that. I'm going to contend, and I'm in the pew with you right now, that it's we are not as enthralled with Jesus and we are not as confident in Jesus as we should be. Paul and Barnabas were, and they changed the whole countryside. Not everyone, don't get me wrong, it's not like you do this and everything will happen. They had people get angry with them. But their confidence in Christ allowed some things. Notice what confidence in Christ will allow you to do. Number one, it will allow you to see God on the move. You'll see God on the move. Listen very carefully. We will never see our mission as being unstoppable until we see God as unstoppable. We will never attempt great things for God unless we see God as truly great. We will never be on the move for God unless we believe in our whole being, that God himself is on the move. You see, our confidence is based solely on God. 
And what I mean by that is what we believe of God is what we will do in the world. And so if we don't think God is all that enthralling to us, we won't be enthralling uh, to the world about God. If we don't think God is all that satisfying to us, then we won't preach and proclaim that God is all satisfying to people. If we don't think that God can truly change the lives of people, then we're going to pick and choose who we're going to share the gospel with because surely that, that hardened criminal, surely that, that person living in debauchery, they can't change. Because God can't change them. But when we see God on the move, then we will go to places where there are helpless and hopeless causes and we'll preach the gospel and see life change. Where do we see that? Notice in the text, in the next paragraph. Now at Lister, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and he had never walked. Notice what Luke had just done. He has said, this guy is hopeless. Three times he says the same thing. He's crippled. He could not use his feet. And he has never walked. Now what Paul should have done is what we, what Paul could have done is what we as human beings do. And that is we walk away from them and we go to the people, humanly speaking, we think might be open to the gospel. But Paul sees this man and he looks intently into his eyes and it says that he sees his faith. I don't know how Paul did that, but I've seen and I have noticed at times when I am in step with God, when there are spiritual things taking place. And I think the Spirit of God was upon Paul, and Paul saw something that only God would reveal to him. And he looked at him and he said, you need to get up and walk. You need to believe what we're preaching. And he does. And part of the reason why we're not proclaiming Christ is we're that girl waiting for the opportunity, and the problem is, is we're not looking as we should. God is on the move everywhere, folks. And we're not on the search of those things. One of the things that I love about a book I read, Experiencing God, Henry Blackaby, years ago. Great book for you to pick up. It's a classic of modern evangelicalism. And in the book it says, find out where God is moving and get there. And that means be on the lookout. Where is God moving? What is God doing in my office place? What is God doing in my school? What is God doing in my neighborhood, in my family? What troubles are people facing? What fears do people have? And, and reading the tea leaves and, and exegeting, if you will, your community and wondering, well, how can I bring the gospel to these people? God will give you the opportunities. He will show you that even in the most helpless of cases, the gospel can bring hope. So what happens? He heals the man. And the people freak out. This is great. This is wonderful. The gods of Hermes and, and Zeus have entered into our city. And we're going to worship them. And their priest comes and says, I'm going to kill a cow. And, and we're going to put garlands around you. You are God. And we want to worship you. And what do they do? Confidence in Christ means that we will stay humble under the spotlight. So... A situation like this happens in one of the Star Wars movies, if you remember. I think it's Return of the Jedi. I'm not a big Star Wars guy, but Return of the Jedi. And remember, the guys get captured on uh, the Ewok planet. And the Ewoks, which are cute little teddy bears, you know what I mean? Lovable little guys, they capture them. And they've got their spears pointing at the group of good guys. And, and they come to this conclusion that C-3PO, the android is one of their gods. He understands their language and, and he's shiny and they're like, this is our God and they let release him. But all of his friends are left and Luke Skywalker, who's a Jedi, has got Jedi power and, and he says, you gotta fix this. You gotta, you gotta make this work and, and he levitates C3PO. And now they're freaking out. Now the gods are mad and he's gonna be angry and so what do the guys tell C3PO? Tell him you're a god so we get our way. We get released. There's a saying, it's good to be king. And that's true. It's better to be God. Right? And Paul and Barnabas could have used this for an opportunity. They could have gotten anything they wanted. They could have demanded anything from them. They had a, 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 a group of people that were locked into anything that they said. They're gods. And what do they do? Notice in the text. They rip off their clothes. Probably to show we're flesh and blood. Look at us. We're no different than you. And they scream and proclaim, we are not God. 
We're not him. We're just like you. But we are here to proclaim a message. We are the witness of the one true God who has saved people from their sin, who has given all kinds of good things like rain and bountiful harvest and has brought forth us as witnesses to that truth. A lot of us in our workplaces and in our athletics and, and in the arts, whether in school or in work, we are, we are a great group of people here. We're very accomplished people in this church. And for that, I'm thankful. You guys are great. And many of you have received accolades and recognitions and responses and all of that. And I want you to be careful. At no point, you probably will never get this. I know you're good, but probably not that good. Nobody thinks you're a god. Okay? But even when people don't think you're a god, there is this tendency for us to not have confidence in Christ, but confidence in ourselves. Remember what Paul says? I have more confidence than all. And... I don't take heart in all of it. I, I think it's rubbish. And so what we need to be careful to do is not let our egos get in the way. Egos, by the way, is an acronym for edging God out. And so when praise comes your way, you need to do what Paul and Barnabas did. We all need to. Listen, I'm just like you. I appreciate the nice sentiment, but I'm just like you. I'm a sinner in need of God's grace. There is a God and I'm not him. So thank you. But let's get to Jesus. They stay humble. Notice, and i got to get moving here, they remain strong in the storm. So, with whiplash, the Jews come from Iconium and they say, listen, these guys are troublemakers. They're not gods. They're demons. They're, they're blasphemers. And so they rile up the crowd. And kind of like Palm Sunday, one day worshiping and praising the name of Jesus and the next day wanting to crucify him, they go from worshiping and praising these guys to wanting them dead. They stone him, Paul. They stone Paul, throw rocks at him to the point of everybody thinking he's dead and they drag him out of the city. What does Paul do? He gets up and he goes back into the city. And he doesn't give up. He doesn't say, you know, it's time to go home to Antioch. I'm I'm ready to give up. He gets up and he leaves town for a while, preaches Christ in Derby and Lystra, and then goes back to all the cities, including Iconium, and goes back and preaches the good news of Jesus Christ after he knows that that city wanted me dead and tried to. This is confidence in Christ. No matter what can man do to me, what can man do to me? What can man do to me if I stand up for the truth? What can man do to me if I stand for Christ? They can do a lot, right? But nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Finally, Stonewall Christianity completes the course. I'm going to go real quick here. Verses 21 through 28. We see the men finishing the journey God had for them. Whether in good, bad, or ugly, they kept pressing on, and they arrived back in Antioch. After visiting all the churches that they've been a part of, And we don't hear of burnout. We don't hear of scheduling conflicts. We don't hear of discouragement. We see action and we see thankful hearts. They're excited. They get home and they say, listen to all that God has done in our lives. And that's what our church services need to be about. Gathering together. Look at what God has done this week in my life. But like so many churches, we find ourselves talking about common things. And these guys get together, and it says that they declared all that God had done with them, and that he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And notice, they got a lot to talk about, and there remained no little time with the disciples. It took a while to share about all that God has done. And listen, we're ready to hit the doors as soon as I say amen. So we need to make a choice. We enter a new week. Will we be on mission for God? We had Ben Hatton here, and I'm I'm over time, so I'll go quickly. But we had Ben Hatton here last week. Ben is in the jungle serving a group of people that are unreached with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he has his family there, and we heard from him. And he said, I love coming back home. And I love the church, and we need the church. And it's not this mission, us, church, them. This guy loves the church more than anybody I know. And I'm not just talking village, but the entire church community. And he says, but Tim, can I ask you a question? And maybe I'm just out of, I I don't know what it is. But he says, when did Christians get that thing? And he said, what are you talking about? That one thing. 
He said, in our visit back, he says, all I hear about Christians talking about is their one thing, not Christ. Their workout regiment, their health plan, their um, kids and their activities, all of these things. Where's the church talking about Jesus? Where's that thing? And I was grieved because most of my conversation with him had been about my things. And here's a guy who's on mission for Christ. And listen, he didn't do it in a, you know, what's your problem? He genuinely asked the question, what's, what's going on? He's an outsider looking at this and trying to figure it out. And he says, where did this one thing, the thing that's bigger than all of our stuff, whether it's our hobbies, our occupations, our vacation dreams, our, our housing decisions, all of this stuff, why are we talking about that? When the one thing that is indescribable is the gift of Jesus Christ. Now, does that mean, listen, does that mean, and don't take my words so literally that you make me out to be a fool. Does that mean we can't talk about those things? No. But sure, we can find some balance, amen? We can find some balance. And we enter a new week, and I'm just asking you, bring Christ into it. Bring the gospel into it. If it's been a zero ratio, zero Christ, 100% you, make it 1% this week. I'm not asking for 100%. Make it 1%. And then the next week, let's try for 2%. If it's 10%, let's get to 15%. If it's 100 or 50%, let's make it 60%. I'm not asking for a miracle. I, maybe I should, but I'm not. And what I'm asking in my own life is I would preach Christ a little bit more this week than I did last week. And that it would grow. Number two. We need to cooperate with God. God is on the move. God is opening doors. It says at the last of the passage, God opened a door. They rejoiced that God had opened a door. I want you to know this morning, God has opened doors before you this week. There are open doors. Now, does God, am I saying that God just opens all doors? No, we're going to learn in a chapter or two that God closes a door. And Paul uses that phrase, he closed the door. We couldn't go through it. So God opens some doors and closes others. But there are doors open. And the problem is, is and, and I say this somewhat in jest, as Christians we are so not in tune with what God is doing, we ask the question, uh, who left the door open? There's a draft. And the door is an opportunity for us to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Where we stand in front of that open door and we look and say, I wonder what's in the hallway. Change lives. Cooperate with God this week. Find the open doors that he's opened and walk through them. Finally, we need other Christians. And we'll talk about this more next week. But chapter 13 begins. I'm sorry, chapter 14 ends where chapter 13 begins. The church. And what's the job of the church? Notice the job of the church is to strengthen the souls of the disciples. Verse 22, encouraging them to continue in the faith. It's great that you bring your friends here to church. But if you think that your friends are brought to church so I can save them or some someone else can save them, then you're not on mission for God. The mission of God is that we will go out and we will be Christ's ambassadors imploring the world be reconciled to God. What is the church's job? To equip you, to grow you, to nurture you and strengthen you so you leave this holy huddle on Sunday morning and with a, a righteous and, and, and wonderful fervor you head out into your far-flung places where you work and where you live and you shine brightly in a dark world. And we need to encourage you and we need to love on you and we need to strengthen you and we need to guide you and serve you and walk you through that process. And for that, I've dedicated myself to that end. So that this church, and I'm going to say this and I'll close, can do the work I know you guys are capable of. Because I've seen it. And I know it can happen because we are seeing people come to know Christ. We are seeing people being led to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you are an active part in it. So continue the work. Press on. Don't give up. And maybe you've been on the sidelines for a while. Well, get in because God wants you to be a part of it. It's a blessing to be in his work. Preach the gospel. And watch out and see what God does.